Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Listen, some of you may know there is a television programme called Gillette Soccer Saturday. And the reason it exists is because in, in normal circumstances, it's not possible to show every Premier League football game live on television. So what Gillette Soccer Saturday offers us is a bunch of ex-footballers watching the games that we are not allowed to watch on their lovely monitors. And we can see them seeing them and they then tell us what's going on. I think the format is taken from the old traditional scam of the kid up a tree or on a fence illegally watching a football game that he had no intention of paying an entrance fee to see and then shouting down to his friends below what's what's going on. So you are dependent either on that ex-footballer or on that kid to interpret the action for you. Now, I think it's probably experiencing both of these phenomena in my time which has led to a situation where I never read poetry in translation because I don't want someone halfway up the tree telling me what the poet is saying. Poems, they're such an intricate, such a nuanced, what a borderline mystical form of communication that I've always felt that a translator can only give at best the sort of general meaning of the poem, but the the expression of, of that meaning, which is so important when you read a poem, is, is uncapturable. However, I discovered a Polish poet called uh, Tadeusz Dobrowski, and the only reason I discovered him is because he was translated by a woman called Antonia Lloyd-Jones, and I read an essay by her talking about translating uh, Dobrowski and she said that she translated two of his poems for the Polish Book Institute and was then contacted by Dobrowski asking her to to translate some more and she said and I quote I was surprised considering I had missed a pun that was crucial to one of the poems I had forced into English for the Institute and uh, I warmed to her when I read this because I, 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 I like the idea that she fessed up to missing a, a, a crucial pun in one of the two poems she translated. And I also like the phrase forced into English. I thought it was an acknowledgement of, of the inevitable shortfall of uh, translating from one language to another. And I thought, you know, if she can put up with that shortfall, so, so can I. I mean, I have read the Bible for most of my adult life, but never in the original Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever. But, you know, it, it's had a big influence on my life. I accept that short for. It's, for me, it's not so much the word of God as, as the gist of God, which um, I operate on. Uh, the other great thing about Antonia Lloyd-Jones is she's not a poet herself. And I think that's a plus because it means that any shortfall won't be filled with her in a way that a, a, a poet translator would be, would be tempted to do. It will just be absence. That meaning will just be missing rather than written by someone else. 
somewhere, I, I must admit, I got into uh, Dobrovsky, um, particularly a collection of his from 2005 called Te Deum, which is a Latin term. Uh, it's um, 2005 in Polish, 2011 in Antonia Lloyd-Jones translation. And um, I just want to talk about, well, I want to talk about, obviously, the poetry within that collection. One poem which I was very interested in is called I Believe All Round the Clock. And it starts with a quote from Tadeusz Ruzevich. And, uh, you know, that's how it is with Tadeusz's. He doesn't see one for ages and then two come along at the same time. And the quote, which I'm, I'm going to read to you, I'm, I'm, I'm reaching for the uh, collection as we speak. The quote says, I don't believe, I don't believe from waking up to falling asleep. And Rusevich is making it clear that he's a non-believer which is, you know, it's it's still a statement to make, I think, in a, in, a, in a Catholic country like Poland. But the way he's stating it there, there sounds like there's some uh, scope for doubt. I don't believe, I don't believe, I mean, the repetition sounds like someone trying to convince themselves. I don't believe, I don't believe, from waking up to falling asleep. Well, of course... That leaves a gap, which is sleep itself, sleep when we're at our most unconscious. And it makes me wonder if he thinks or or fears that he believes as he sleeps. Now, our Tadeusz, uh, Tadeusz Dobrovsky, the poet I'm talking about today, is a believer. He's not a formal Roman Catholic, I think it would be true to say. I'm not suggesting that he's what they call spiritual, I certainly wouldn't lay that on him. Spiritual people are those that like a scented candle and a, you know, a framed colour photo of a misty forest that don't want to get up early on a Sunday morning. I don't think he's that. He's a sort of, a, not a lapsed Catholic, he's a sort of a fractured Catholic. He says in this book, in fact, that... Uh, during the elevation of the Eucharist, when the priest holds up the body of Christ, he's often thinking of elevating the dress of the married woman kneeling in front of him. So he was he's very honest about his own faults and weaknesses and the fractured nature of his Catholicism. Okay, so I believe all round the clock, I'm just going to read you the first stanza in English I was drunk when the drunken Pluska asked what makes me believe in God Pluska said he doesn't believe in anything higher than himself now to me I was drunk when the drunken Pluska asked what makes me believe in God it's it's got the sort of thump the beat of a night out, of a drunken night out, of a club or a bar. It's got that feel to it. But when Pluska speaks, that rhythm breaks down. I was drunk when the drunken Pluska asked what makes me believe in God. Pluska said he doesn't believe in anything higher than himself. And Pluska's 
statement is very much the statement of the modern world i think it's very it's got a sort of warrior pose feel to it and i think it's one of those lines that derails an evening so then it goes on i really wanted to show her pluska in a million sparkling proofs that god exists and for me that sounds like a you know that over that super affection you get when you're drunk with a friend i really wanted to show her it's got that but it's also got someone who wants to show off their intellect to their friend to destroy them in an argument I really wanted to show a Pluska in a million sparkling proofs that God exists. But then there's a kind of a calm down. But all that came into my head was this. Pluska, either you believe or you don't. And he's obviously slightly ashamed as a poet that that is the best thing he could come up with. And yet... It is a cliche, I suppose, either you believe or you don't, but it is it's quite a a poetic cliche. It you know, it, it deals with the mystery of faith. As um Rusevich, um, as he suggests in his quote, uh it comes from a deeper place, uh, the belief and possibly the, the unbelief than we can quite define. You either believe or you don't. It sounds that it is an instinct of some kind. It continues. Then I fell asleep. So that makes me think, so this debate, at least uh, internally, has continued until he's got back home, uh, the speaker, or back somewhere, wherever drunken nights end. Then I fell asleep. I dreamed of a poem. The poem consisted exactly of the dialogue quoted above, i.e. the conversation with Pluska that we've just been looking at. That's the end of the stanza. And there's a reason for for that. Antonia Lloyd-Jones said one thing that she observes very strictly is the line breaks of Dubrovsky when she translates him because she feels they're important. What he's done here is not only ended a line there, but he's he's ended a stanza. I dreamed of a poem. The poem consisted exactly of the dialogue quoted above. New stanza. And the clincher which said it all. Now that's comic timing, I would say, because you can imagine having a dream in which you reproduced the argument that you couldn't come up with anything better than either you do believe or you don't to uh, to complete. And then having the dream, and in the dream you come up with, a, as he says, a clincher, a real zinger to end it. It's interesting that it's a poem, though. I dreamed of a poem. He doesn't just dream of the argument. The poem is the argument plus the clincher. So in a way, the poem is this poem, except it includes those million sparkling proofs that God exists. It includes that moment, which he isn't able to put in in this poem. Dubrovsky seems to believe from reading his poems 
he seems to believe that the subconscious, the sleeping self in particular, is some sort of repository for truth that the poet can can use and can learn from, but he can never quite reach that truth which he found there. You see, he says in the poem, after he's told us of this, I dreamed of a poem and the clincher. In my sleep, I thought I'd write it all down in the morning, but in the morning, I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that, and now a new stanza begins, I'd forgotten that final verse, which I do believe exists. So the last stanza is just final verse, which I do believe, new line, block capitals, exists, like someone trying to convince themselves. Now, that may be why it's in block capitals. It may be just the frustration of believing in God and also believing that there is a truth that only poetry can express, but not being able to prove it. That is where I think that final verse, which I do believe exists, it's a belief in poetry and a belief in God tied together. And it's it's very typical of Dubrovsky to have a very almost sordid knockabout event going on. Here a drunken night, an argument with his mate, but a very big conversation, a conversation about the existence of God. It's his habit, I would say in his poetry, to wrap the big in the small. That seems to be one of his techniques. And interesting, this this poem, I dreamed of a poem. Not I dreamed a poem. I dreamed of a poem. The poem consisted exactly of the dialogue quoted above and the clincher which said it all. So it's like the, the poem was already written. He didn't dream it. There's no sense of composition. I dreamed of a poem. It's like it was in him, that poem. But he couldn't bring its deepest truth, the clincher, back to us. He could only give us this incomplete version of the dream poem instead. Now, also in this collection, there is a a poem uh, by Dobrovsky called Soiree. So it's another wild night out and it opens with him talking to a woman at a party. And throughout these poems, he is drunk, chasing women, using internet pornography and discussing God and poetry and massive topics of that nature. So he's a a contradictory figure and not always likeable, the voice of these poems. Anyway, he's, he's chatting to someone at a party and it begins with a classic sort of fan question, a thing that a poet mu- must get asked a lot, but it has a sort of a, it has a, an electricity to it. Could, could it be an invitation of some kind? Do you write by day or by night? By day and by night. So he's been asked this question, do you write by day or by night? There could be an element of what are you doing after about it. But by day and by night, that does sound like the the serious, the career poet, the vocational poet, the man who never stops creating these, these pieces of art. 
I again notice Antonia Lloyd Jones's observation of the line break, and 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 I trust that that it's correct because he he does sound like a great poet, a romantic poet when he says that by day and by night, but that is the end of the line, but not the end of the sentence. So the entire piece of dialogue goes. Do you write by day or by night? By day and by night. On to the next line. My dear lady. And you think... Yuck, ladies, man. And it's a bit awful. It doesn't show him in a great light. And also, he's about now to, to talk about his his methods of composition and his views on poetry... And he has undermined it from the start by wrapping it all up in a chat-up line. It's again this habit of his of putting big conversations in, in quite small settings. So he tells her that he writes some poems that are artificial in spite of being true. So somehow unauthentic, somehow overworked... So the artifice required in making the poem gets in the way of, uh, obscures the truth. There is a, another poem called Bunny Slope, which um, I didn't know that a bunny slope was a, um, a beginner slope for skiers, a sort of easy slope. Frank don't ski, but this poem, I just, I just want to chuck it in. Now I'll just I'll just rattle through. It's short. It's it's ten lines and less than fifty words if you're a word count kind of a person. But this is uh, Dubrovsky giving a little manifesto of, of of poetry. When I'm writing a poem, there's less and less of it. As I approach the mountains, they vanish behind a gentle hill, behind the bunny slope. And once I'm standing with them face to face, they take away my speech. The very best poem finishes halfway. And I think what he means in when I'm writing a poem, there's less and less of it. It's about stripping away the artifice, the the poetry with a capital P and just leaving the truth there, I think. And also giving us more work to do. I don't think it's a coincidence that... Bonnie Slope is set in a snowy landscape. I think it's the idea of the way poems look, these these little clusters of words in the midst of all this whiteness, you know, that they're very uneconomical with their use of space, poems. And I think he's talking about that, that we, there's less and less of the poem because we have to work harder and harder as readers. And that's why the very best poem finishes halfway, because we we have to do some of the work. That white space is for us. And when he says in the Bonnie Slope, as I approach the mountains, they vanish behind the gentle hill, behind the Bonnie Slope. I think the Bonnie Slope is these everyday settings that he gives these big conversations that he's having. So I think, the drunken argument with a friend, the, the chat up at, at an evening party. They're the bunny slopes, if you like, but behind them are these mountains, which, as he says, when he's standing with them face to face, they take away my speech. 
these are big, mighty truths about God or poetry that it's quite hard to express. And so he's just going to take us to the the bonnie slope to a party or to a to a club and we're going to be there on the beginner's slope but he's going to imply the mountains we'll be able to feel the mountains from where we are and I think that's how poetry often works certainly this kind of modern poetry that the big truths are there but we have to search for them the clincher, the mountains, the greater theme of the poem is suggested by the words rather than defined by the words. Okay, so he tells her that he writes these poems that he's not happy with and he says that he then, the way he treats these poems, and so writing and deleting all at once I efface the day and once again it is night. So the poems he's written that day about the previous night's experiences, if you like, he seems to go out on these, on these drunken nights to collect the sausage meat with which he makes the sausages that are his poetry, if I may reduce poetry to a, a process meat analogy. So I love that, writing and deleting all at once, I have faced the day. And that sounds like that line in Bonnie Slope, that um, when I'm writing a poem, there's less and less of it. He's chipping away, taking away everything he thinks he doesn't need, trying to show us the mountains, even though he doesn't feel he can actually show them. He wants us to feel the mountains. I saw a documentary about an abstract artist called Sean Scully. And he said that he, he, when he started painting, he began painting a landscape with a beautiful blue sky and green fields and, and a blue lake. And he would paint that scene over and over and think, I'm just, there's too much. I'm giving it too much. I... It, I, I don't need, I don't need all this detail. And, and eventually he stripped it down so it would be like three stripes, a blue stripe, a green stripe, and then a slightly different blue stripe. And he felt that the viewer of that art would fill in the gaps, would recreate that landscape. And the joy of that recreation, the joy of being communicated not from mind to mind, but from got to got in some way, to be communicated with at some deeper level by those block colours would be much more satisfying than uh, giving it them on a plate, as, as it were. And I think that's what's happening um, when he talks about his, his poems, writing and deleting all at once, stripping it down, when I'm writing a poem, there's less and less of it, as he says in Bonnie Slope, stripping it down, stripping it down. Okay. Then we go to um, the next section of Soiree. All the loveliest poems come alive in sleep. White ones with rhymes ingrained with a drained pen on a clean, plain notepad. These poems I instinctively seek at night time. Wow. Okay, so these poems, interestingly, again, we're back to sleep. We're back to the subconscious. We're back to this belief 
by Dobrovsky that there's something deeper in us, some pool that we can ladle the truth out of. So all the loveliest poems come alive in sleep. White ones with rhymes. And I think, again, white ones, we're back to the bunny slope. We're back to those white spaces. We're back to not doing too much work for the reader, for presenting them with something that they then find the truth in, just like that, that painting by Sean Scully. All the loveliest poems come alive in sleep. White ones with rhymes ingrained with a drained pen on a clean, plain notepad. And you can hear the, the assonance, I think, in that. The internal rhyme. The um, ingrained with a drained pen on a clean, plain notepad. It feels like creativity just pouring out of him. It's one after the next, these these internal rhymes. I also think that, that internal rhymes, they're a bit different from rhymes that come at the end of lines. They are ingrained, as, as he says. They're more organic. I think end rhyme, there's a reason that it's often not used by modern poets. I think there can be... I think part of the artifice that um, Dobrovsky wants to avoid could be expressed in end rhyme. They are, they're too neat in a way. They're too reassuring. They're a sort of placebo. Internal rhymes, these ingrained rhymes they talk about, I don't think he just means literally rhymes. I think he means a sense of harmony and rightness about about the poem, but again, a subtle, nuanced truth. And I think he probably feels that end rhymes are too much, too much of a handrail for the reader. So these seem to be white poems uncluttered by words, if you like. We're back in that snowy landscape when I'm writing a poem, there's less and less of it. It's interesting, the sleep. Again, here, he seems to be finding the truth in sleep, just like he did in the previous poem. And I wonder if it's because that's a good place, obviously, to get in touch, getting in touch with the subconscious. Maybe even drink. I mean, I please, I'm not um, recommending anyone out there should turn to alcohol in order to find their internal poetic heart but um i wonder if that's one of the reasons there's so much drinking in these that it's it's a way of getting in touch with your subconscious a e houseman the great british poet from uh, the early 20th century the writer of the a shropshire lad said that if he had a pint of beer at lunch then often a line or two or even a whole stanza it just just fall out of him, somehow induced by the drink. And I, I, I'll, I'll quote this. I find this amazing. Accompanied, not preceded by, a vague notion of the poem they were destined to form a part of. Accompanied, not preceded by. So these lines came out with the poem, all there, as if, as if they already existed in some way, as if that that poem in the in the dream 
of the drunken conversation. He dreamt of a poem, if you remember. He didn't dream a poem. And, and here, these poems, they seem to have a, a, a pre-existence of some kind. He said, these poems I instinctively seek at night time. Um, he seeks them as if they're already out there somewhere, or should I say in there. It, that section I just read began, all the loveliest poems come alive in sleep, not are written in sleep. They're, they're already, he feels, it's as if he feels these poems are within him. I once had a dream in which I was having the most fantastic stand-up comedy gig you could ever imagine. And I think that's probably been 15 years ago. And I think over those 15 years, I can still hear the gig. I just, I can't hear the words, if that makes sense to you. I could feel the funny, but I couldn't. I couldn't write it down the next day, just just the same problem that Dubrovsky had. And I think every joke I've written since then, every piece of stand-up, I have tried somehow to reach into that dream gig, but I've never, um, I've never managed to find... Still, it's not about me, as I often say in these podcasts. So the poem ends, soiree, ends with a line... Come out to meet me before I forget what I came out for. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I think come out to meet me might be talking to those poems before I forget what I came out for. Come out now why I'm receptive, why I'm in touch with myself before... I forget what I came out for before I disappear into the dark, dark, hedonistic night. He might be saying to us, come out to meet me before I forget what I came out for, because I think the whole point of In Bonnie Slope, the, uh, the very best poem finishes halfway, it's up to us to go and meet him halfway. We too must venture out into, into the cold night in order to find the truth. He's, we're not going to get it on a plate. We're going to have to work for it. And every every poem, I believe, is is a is a cocktail of the 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 poet and the reader. I hope that's true because I don't want it on a plate. I want to be part of it. I want it to be. I want uh, every poem I read to somehow belong to me, as well as to the poet. So there you have it. I almost wonder if it's a plus to occasionally read poems in translation because every poem, I think it is not too big a statement, every poem is at least uh, one act of translation. I think the poet translates his feelings, his deepest thoughts into words, and then we translate those words, I suppose, back into feelings with all the spillage, misunderstanding and accidental additions that happen along the way. That poem, Bonnie Slope, if you turn it on its side, it looks like a mountain. It starts with short lines and then it's got longer lines and then it ends with shorter lines. It actually looks like a mountain. He can show us the mountains. He can show us the big truths, but they'll be on their side 
and they won't be that easy to spot and you could read the poem 20 times and and never see that aspect of it and yes of course you might not have even intended it but it damn well looks like a mountain to me so look you may feel that some of the concepts discussed in this podcast have been not fully expressed or explained for example uh, I use the phrase the big truths or truth in general, but I mean, what does that mean? Still, I think the best podcast, like the best poem, finishes halfway. I've given you my three stripes of colour and I'm confident that you'll come out to meet me halfway and complete the picture. So good luck with that. Uh, I don't see these podcasts as a goal. I see them as an assist. Thus... I begin and end with a football analogy, which is uh, tremendous. In my end is my beginning, as dear old T.S. Eliot once said. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. Oh, and why not buy my new book, How to Enjoy Poetry by Frank Skinner. P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. See you next week. <laughs>